Well, good morning. Good morning. Walter Spires, I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. We're going to finish up this message I started last week on Papa, I Can't Quit Crying. And last time we talked about tears of sadness, and we talked some about the difference between sadness and sorrow. I'm not going to review very much of that today because we have a lot to get through to finish up this week because next week is Mother's Day. Let me pray us in and we'll get started. Father God, thank you for this beautiful day and thank you for this beautiful time in your word to study what you have to say to us and what you said to us. And Lord, let your Holy Spirit, <clears throat> let your Holy Spirit move on us and in us and through us so that we might be the testimony for Christ that we need to be in a world that is desperate and hopeless and full of tears of all kinds, sadness, sorrow, Lord, that you would lead us through to these tears of joy as we talk about that today. For Christ's sake, amen. All right. As I said, we talked about tears of sadness last time and what that looked like. And tears of sadness were more related to circumstances and stuff. You know, sadness over things lost of our home, a job, a car, or physical things. That's more the tears of sadness. We talked about even those tears that God will deal with it. He never leaves us or forsakes us. Today, I want to talk about tears of sorrow because these are the ones that affect us more deeply. They have to do with people. They have to do with people and the circumstances around people, people in our lives, good, bad. However, it happens that we end up weeping tears of sorrow. We're going to just look at examples. I'm going to give you a number of examples going through the Word of God today. We're going to look at David first because he is the best example by far in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Jesus in the New Testament. So I think it's going to be something to help us understand what these tears of sorrow are, that we are not alone, that you're in a, if you're in a place in your life where you are just burdened, you're just burdened and you're weeping deep, profound tears of sorrow, and you want to know how to move through that to get the tears of joy, we're going to talk about that today. And I'm praying, I'm believing that the Holy Spirit is going to help you move through that process. What causes tears of sorrow? Which we know it has to do with the people, first and foremost, our families. And we're praying right now with people who have sick children that may be terminally ill. We have friends that have lost loved ones and just every the full spectrum of sickness and disease and illness that came in this world as a result of sin and the fall of man and the corruption of everything that came as a result of that. And so disease and sickness comes out of that. God never intended that we would be prone to sickness and illness and diseases of every kind. It wasn't meant to be that way. It wasn't. And yet we find ourselves there all too frequently, all too frequently. And as we age, it just gets worse. But we're especially moved when it affects little children and we see those TV commercials about St. Jude and the wonderful work they do with children with cancers of various kinds and diseases and uh, just breaks your heart. Well, let's get into that because we want to move through. Got a lot of scripture for you. Again, this will be posted probably tomorrow. My notes, the video will come tomorrow, the next day, and the audio uh, with that. So I'll give you three ways to do it. We call it read, watch, listen, and everything that I write and teach the Lord gives me, we make it available in three different formats. So you have it however you want to receive it. It's there. All right, let's look at the life of David. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, the background is this. David had become king 
and he and his men, his, his soldiers had been out fighting a battle. When they came back from war, and this happened, this went on all the time, as you know, throughout the period of the kings when their wars and fightings with all the ites, and then later even among themselves when the kingdom split, and you had Judah and Israel, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, they were fighting amongst themselves. It was just a, a, an incredible time of war through that season in the Old Testament. David and his men came home from battle only to find that their wives and children and the other men that had not gone into battle had been kidnapped. They'd been captured. That this other army had come in and taken them away. And so we read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 4, David and the men who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Those are tears of sorrow. They wept until they had no more strength to weep. They came home, found their loved ones, women, children, other men just taken, captured, and carried off somewhere else. And we know that later God restored all that, but they wept until they had no more strength. David wrote a number of psalms that are referred to as penitential psalms. Penitential psalms are those of just psalms of sorrow, sorrow, and, and repentance and confession. We're going to talk about those more uh, in a few minutes. But in these deep, sorrowful, penitential psalms, David just poured out his heart, and you will see examples of tears of sorrow, probably unlike any others. And so what he's saying, Psalm 6-6, which is a, an incredible psalm to read, he is repentant, he is uh, pleading with God to restore him, and he said this, this is Psalm 6-6, I'm weary with my sighing, every night I make my bed swim. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. That's deep, profound tears of sorrow. The life of David is one that, it's just an amazing study. And it parallels many lives today more than probably anyone else. Because David just, he just screwed up a lot. He is the only one in the Bible referred to as a man after God's own heart. But he made unbelievable mistakes. If it was today, he would have never survived those because of the way things work so much differently as opposed to when God was over his people and protecting David. (laughs) And so we know that David was uh, involved with adultery that led to murder, that led to some of these verses I'm going to read here. But after that, after all these things, all these sins of David, he would go and repent to the Lord. And he did. He did that many times. And so his heart was for the Lord. His heart was right. He just made a lot of mistakes in there, just as you and I have. Maybe not to that extent, that that level of sin, that level of, of horrible, awful crime, quite frankly, some of it. Well, let me, let me give you two examples, again, where... Um, David paid for the sins in ways that affected his family going forward. You see, as I was teaching the other night to the men of the mission, there's no sin that God won't forgive. There is no sin God won't forgive. Now, I'm not going to talk about the unpardonable sin. I mean, that's when you just deny Christ as being God and you reject him altogether. You're right. That one, you bought hell with that one. But here's the problem. It's more often the consequences of the sin that follow you around. And and a lot of times they follow you around for years. They don't necessarily go away. Sometimes there are no consequences at all. 
And sometimes there are terrible consequences, and that's what we're going to see here. So in, in 1 Samuel 12, I'm going to give you two passages out of two examples out of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, the first one is there was, you know, David had that affair with Bathsheba. She became pregnant and had a baby, had a baby. But the baby was not doing well. And so we read in 1 Samuel 12, 16, 17, and then I'm going to skip to 22 and 23. It says, later the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. It's a very strange and horrible thing to think of. And therefore, David pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went on to lay on the ground. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. He wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. But now that he has died, why should I fast? So people, were, people were criticizing David that once the child had died, he was now going back to more normal activities. And he said, listen, I mourned and fasted and wept with tears of sorrow when that baby was still alive, praying that God would spare him because of me to take me because it was his sin. David knew that it was his sin that caused this to happen. And God did not spare the child. And David said, why should I fast now that he's died? Can I bring him back again? Now, here's a verse that you need to hold on to. If you're a parent like Gigi and I are, where you lost a baby, either in the womb or soon thereafter, he said this, I'm going to be with him. He will not return to me. That verse is for those of us who have lost children, babies, uh, premature, pre-birth, post-birth, that we know, just as this child was immediately in the arms of Jesus, immediately in the presence of God. Because David said, I'm going to go where he is. He's not coming back to life again. I'm going to be where he is. In other words, I will spend eternity in heaven with him as well. And so we rest on this verse. And, and quite frankly, some people don't believe it means that at all. But I do, and I've studied it enough to know that I believe this is exactly what it means. Because otherwise, David just means, well, I'm going to die just like he's dying. No, no, he says, I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be with that child at some point. He's not coming back to me. So those of us who have lost, given back children, babies, infants, preborns to God, we hold on to that, that we will, we will one day uh, see that child, play with that child, be with that child. We will. Hallelujah. So David lost that child as a consequence of his sin. Now, another one. We fast forward a number of years. He's got a, another grown family. David had multiple wives, many wives. It was Wrong, but he did. His son Absalom, who was the most beautiful, handsome of all of them, he was. Uh, he wanted. He was in line to be the king. He was David's favorite by far. And then Absalom rebelled. He rebelled against David. He had to try. He, had, he tried to have him killed. And we read this in Second Samuel eighteen. It was just. Uh, in fact, David was. Uh, having to go hide in caves. He had to leave Jerusalem. He had to leave the palace. He had to go do all these things to get away from his own son, who was his favorite son, but was trying to kill him and took over the kingship. And so Absalom was anointed as king by some people and others stayed with David, but they had to run off and hide. They were living in caves and hiding out. Well, there was a battle in trying to take the throne back for David, the rightful throne, which it should have been because God was the one that anointed David. So that every other king and that the line of Christ would come through David ultimately, which it did. 
But in 2 Samuel 18, we read this, 18 and then 19. The king, meaning David, trembled and went up to his chamber over the gate and wept. And this is what he said as he walked. Because he had, he had received the news that Absalom had been killed. That Absalom, his son, the defiant one, the one who tried to kill him, who had taken the throne wrongfully and sinfully, he'd been killed. And here's David's response. My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. That's how much he loved him. If only I had died instead of you. And again, he went on to say, Absalom, my son, my son. And it was reported by one of the people there that behold, the king is weeping and he mourns for Absalom. No one has known more parental sorrow, part of which is brought on himself, than David. Lost a baby, lost his favorite son, his favorite son defied him, tried to kill him. Tears of sorrow. And yet we know, we know that David, through these penitential psalms, would go back and confess his sin to God. But he had to deal with the consequences. Let me give you a couple of examples in the New Testament from Jesus himself on this tears of sorrow. And, and the point of all this is really simple. It's just for us to see that when we are crying and, and mourning these deep, deep, deep sorrow, tears of sorrow, we're not alone. You know, this has happened throughout history and God was with them and God is with us. And now Jesus himself and in John 11, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. And if you're an old church kid like I am, you grew up in Sunday school. This was one of those trivia questions. You learned this. and It was the easiest verse in the Bible to learn. John 11, 35, because there's only two words. Only two words. Let me give you the context of it. I'll read a few verses above that. Lazarus had died. You remember Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the two sisters and a brother, were good friends of Jesus. They're friends. He loved them. They were his friends. And it says, when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, well, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And in John eleven thirty five, those two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That's the verse, John eleven thirty five. That's it. Jesus wept. Why? Because he was so deeply moved. It says he was deeply moved and sorrowful. Not just over the death of his friend, because that was clearly part of it, but just seeing the effect it caused in all the people that were just mourning and weeping. If you've ever been to a, a funeral or been somewhere where people didn't expect someone to die, it's a it's a often a very sorrowful time. It's a it's a difficult time and and, and Jesus was among them, and he just saw it. And just that deep, deep, profound sorrow and the weeping of people, their tears led our Savior to weep as well. Why? Because he just feels our pain. He feels our pain. He weeps when we weep. And as I said last night, catches every tear in a bottle, as that verse said in Psalm, catches every tear in a bottle. There's another example. And some of you may not identify with this as much. I, I do, and I'm going to explain to you why. In, uh, in Luke 19, as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, you know, coming in probably from the Mount of Olives. I don't remember the exact context in the background there. 
but coming in, the Mount of Olives was up here, and he just uh, is Jerusalem was just not far away. And so as he's coming in, he says in Luke 19, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over the city. Why? Why would you weep over a city? Why would you weep over a nation? Well, we're told. Jesus said if, to Jerusalem, if you had known this day, even you, the conditions for peace. The conditions for peace were simple. He was Messiah and he had come to be their king, but not the kind that they wanted. He was offered, he was their ultimate peace, right? The Prince of Peace, but they rejected him. They rejected him. So he's just saying, if you'd known this, if you'd recognize it and received me as many claim to, and then yet abandoned him, you'd known peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes and the days will come upon you. Listen to the warning. The days will come upon you when your enemies will put a barricade up against you, surround you, hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and throw down your children with you. And they will not leave in you, meaning in Jerusalem, one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The time of your visitation, God finally sent the long-awaited Messiah, and they rejected him. They rejected him. And so this is the consequence. Jesus is weeping profoundly over what's going to happen. And we know that in 70 AD, the Romans finally leveled it all, including the temple, destroyed it all, destroyed the temple, and they were fed up with the Jews. They were fed up with them Jesus' time, but it wasn't time yet. And, they, and the apostle Paul spoke this. It happened probably just after most all of the disciples were martyred, and probably John alone was left in 70 AD. Most of them, we think John, uh, excuse me, not John, uh, Paul, apostle Peter, they died in the 60s. They were martyred in the 60s. John, we know, lived on until nearly the end of the century, in the 90s AD, and everything that Jesus said about them, the siege and destroying Jerusalem, and it didn't have to be that way. Jesus said, you just, you rejected the Prince of Peace. But his response was to cry and weep deep, profound tears of sorrow. I'm not sure why, just what the Holy Spirit does in me. I relate to that a lot because I find myself at times when I'm praying for our nation, for our world, and the sin in it, just what's going on, that I find myself weeping these deep, deep tears of sorrow, just, just weeping from deep within because I see what's happening. It is the march to Revelation. It is supposed to happen. It's what's going to happen. It's going to keep on happening. I tell people unashamedly, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. That's exactly what the New Testament teaches here as you proceed on in eschatology, we move toward Revelation and end times. It's what Jesus taught and, and all the apostles that wrote and taught after him. But it still doesn't mean you don't weep and you don't keep trying to preach the truth and teach the truth, which is what I do to call people to repentance, to call people to repentance. And so that's the next tier we're going to talk about is tears of remorse and repentance. I mentioned some of that already with, uh, with David and those penitential psalms. Well, what we first need to experience in our own lives is that God would, would overwhelm us with a deep, profound sorrow and regret for our own sin and lead us to the point where David was of that regret, that remorse, and then ultimately repentance. So let me give an example. Another one of the penitential Psalms, Psalm 32. David said this, 
When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, groaning all day long. Night and day, your hand was heavy on me. Felt like my hand, his hand, God, hand of God was heavy on him. My, my vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. And here's the key. I acknowledge, I confess my sin to you, and I did not hide my guilt. I said, Lord, I've made a mess of this. Lord, look at the stupid things I've done. Lord, here's my sin. Please, here, just lay it out there. He already knows it, but lay it out there and confess it. Lay it out there and confess it. And David said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John 1, 9, if you're a church kid, you know that verse, uh, because God has said, um, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is. David knew that. David's a testimony of that back in, you know, about the year 1000, something like that, out of Psalm 32. Probably one of the most profound examples of this is in Luke 22. Jesus is being tried, all those different trials that he went through before he was crucified. Remember, just before when they were in the garden, Peter had said, I'd never deny you. I'd stand up there. I'll die with you. And Jesus said to him, look, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, no, not me. These guys might do it, but not me. No, not me. I'm your man. I'm, I'm your man. I'm the guy. And we're reading Luke 22, about a half an hour, about an hour later, another man insisted, talking to Peter, calling him out. Hey, certainly this man was with Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. They recognized the dialect of his voice. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know him. And while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And this is that one example that just make, gives me chills and makes me weep because it says that the Lord, you know, he was up there being tried, smacked around, beaten, all that. Peter was lurking around, slinking around in the background, hiding, but watching what was going on. And when the cock crowed after he denied him that third time, it says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. You imagine what that was like to make eye contact with your Savior after you had denied him the third time and done just exactly what he said you were going to do? Well, therefore, excuse me, it said that Peter went out and wept bitterly, wept bitterly. This was that profound changing time in Peter's life where he realized he's full of himself. He's full of himself. And he realizes now, I did just exactly what he said I was going to do. I denied him because I was afraid, afraid of what was going to happen to me. And so for us as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, how many times have we denied Jesus? How many times have you denied him in the way you uh, conduct your life, the way you live? Are you, denying them? Are you denying him to people at work because you're afraid of what they might think? If they think, well, you're one of those Christians, they're a bunch of haters. We have to think about this and think about how we have denied Jesus with our lives, with our mouths, with our words, just like Peter. Just like Peter. The good news, the good news that brings us out of the depths of this sorrow I've talked about now for two weeks, the, the tears of sadness that we weep over things that happen and circumstances that tear us down and blow up our lives, the tears of sorrow that come to us when we lose loved ones, when someone is, is sick and dying, when a child is ill and 
maybe ill to death, like in David's uh, son's case there we talked about, and we just can't control ourselves, we can't contain ourselves, or you weep like Jesus did, like I have, maybe many of you have, you weep over this nation, and you say, listen, we're the most blessed nation in history, the richest, wealthiest nation in history, and here we are, the most profane, uh, the most godless, the most anti-Christ that we could ever be, we could ever be. And it grieves our spirits and we weep and we beg that pray that God would bring revival through us to our broken hearts, through our broken hearts. And the good news is that when we are in Christ, when we ourselves have gone through that verse that I neglected to put here, and I'm going to just share it with you because it's the most important verse, I think, personally, for us to look at as Christians to make sure that we are truly born again. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, Paul told these people that were, you know, he he founded the church there and was trying to lead them out of a pagan lifestyle and all the things that went on in Corinth. And there were false teachers coming in and he couldn't be with them all the time. He's writing these letters. And he said in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, there is a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow that produces repentance without regret, that leads to salvation. Let me walk through that again, okay? There's a godly sorrow that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin that leads to repentance, that I confess my sin and say, oh my God, I am a sinner. I need Jesus. And if you're lost out there and you don't know him and you've rejected all this stuff because you think Christianity and us as Christians are a bunch of hypocrites and it's not true and Jesus can't be the only way, And I want you to listen to this as well, because I'm going to come back to this when we close in a minute. There's a godly sorrow that produces repentance without regret. It means I'm not sorry to say that. I'm not sorry to say, listen, Lord, I've screwed this all up. I'm not embarrassed anymore. That's pride. That's the sin of pride. If you hold this stuff in and you're afraid to confess your sin, that's pride. Without regret. I'm not sorry that I said this. I'm just sorry I waited so long to get this out and say, Lord, I need a Savior under salvation, produces it under salvation. We're saved, we're born again. And he finishes that verse saying, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That if you've got these tears of sadness, these tears of sorrow, even tears of remorse, yet you don't make that confession that you're a sinner and you need a savior, then you have in effect rejected Christ and you will die in your sins. And the consequences are hell. It's awful. Don't be there. But the good news, the good news that brings us up out of the depths of despair, that wipes away our sadness and our tears, is this. Tears of joy. Tears of joy. David talked about them. He said, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. In John 20, after Jesus was telling his disciples about what was going to happen, that they were going to grieve and mourn, and yet the people were going to rejoice and shout and celebrate his death, his crucifixion. He finished that verse in John 20, 16, but your sorrow, your sorrow, because they had deep, deep, profound sorrow. Why? Because their, their friend, their teacher, their rabbi of three years had been brutally, mercilessly killed, crucified on a cross, and the resurrection hadn't come, and I don't know if they even were sure it was going to. He kept telling them it was, but Jesus said, at that point, at that point, 
your tears, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Joy. The, the verse that we all cling to, the verse that, that just makes us weep these tears of joy that brings us out of the depths of despair is found in Revelation 21. We're at the end of the Bible, getting close there. In Revelation 21, 4 to 6, we have this promise. It's a promise that it says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more death, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The first things, this first stuff of the first world, the broken world of sin that began with Adam and Eve in the garden, have passed away, have passed away. Christ has returned, setting up his eternal kingdom. And if we're born again in Christ, we're part of that. And in that kingdom, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. No one's going to die. And everyone, everyone that you've loved in Christ, everyone who is born again in Christ out of your family, from the babies, from the unborn, all the way up through whoever, whoever, you're going to live eternally in joy, no sorrow, but joy in heaven with them. You will be reunited with them. It's a promise. It is the promise. This is what we hold on to. That's why you got to keep reading through the Bible because it's hard in the Old Testament and it's hard as we get to this part. And then there's some promises of hope throughout. But ultimately, this is the expression of that hope. It is hope. There'll be no more tears, no more death, no more crying, pain, sorrow. Mm. I want to close with these words from Corey Ten Boom. She said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within yourself, you'll be depressed. And then if you look at God, you'll be at rest. What sweet words. What sweet words. Mm. The, um, the last admonition I have for those who reject Christ, for those who continue to say there's got to be another way. Jesus can't be the only way. I'm looking for God. I'm looking for all this. If I'm going to find it some other way or... I'm my own God, which you are if you reject the God of the Bible, the only God, the one true God. In Revelation 21, in the verses just beyond those verses of unbelievable hope and tears of joy that I read to you, Jesus goes on to say this. And this is a strong warning, so listen carefully. And Christian, you listen carefully for those who you love that are not in the faith, that have not received Christ, that you are not witnessing to that you have given up or you think, well, maybe you'll just rub off on them. It is not going to happen that way. But here's what he said to those who ultimately reject Christ in Revelation 21, 8. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, for the unbelieving, if there are unbelievers in your life, you need to understand that he's speaking to them. And if you think you're going to sit by there, or, or let me say it this way, if you sit by there and do nothing and don't try to usher them in the kingdom, sharing with them, continually breathing into them the love of Jesus and what it means to be born again, this is what you're going to find. This is what they're going to be left with. For the cowardly, the unbelieving, and abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons, sorcerers, adulterers, excuse me, idolaters, and liars, 
their part will be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, the second death. You die one time, and if you're not born again, if you're in the unbelieving crowd, the second death is fine. That's it, except for one thing. It's referred to as a death, but you just suffer in hell. This He called it here the lake of fire and brimstone. That lake of hell is called a number of different things, but it is an eternal suffering. Eternal. It means it doesn't go away. And you say, well, yeah, well, he, he said abominable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Well, these people aren't that bad. They're just, you know, they're just what, unbelievers? Well, that's funny because he started with unbelievers. Unbelievers are counted among that lot. And if you're an unbeliever, if, you're, if you continue to deny the claims of Christ and who he is, whew, my encouragement to you is to be like when Jesus told Thomas, he said, be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas wanted to see his hands and his side and all that stuff. You can't do that. You can't do that. Thomas was able to. You cannot. I cannot. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. I'm praying with you and pleading with you as a wrap-up now to just beg you, beg you to move from that state of unbelieving to believing, that you will, your tears of sadness, your tears of sorrow will turn to tears of remorse and repentance, and that you will beg God to come and be your Savior through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's the only way. I pray you would today. Don't let this go. Don't turn this off. Just do not, do not walk away from this. I may be the last voice, the last voice that God has put in your life to plead with you to receive his love, his love, the expression of love, which is Jesus Christ, through whom and him only can you be saved. Father God, I pray that no one, no one who is in this unbelieving, these other groups that are mentioned here in Revelation 21, would walk away today without bowing the knee, without weeping the tears of remorse, repentance, and regret by your Holy Spirit to receive Christ as Savior. And I pray that in his holy and precious name, and, and for those of us who are born again in Christ, that we would take seriously the admonitions here, that we would understand that we are here to be witnesses. Jesus said, go be my witnesses. And we're not doing an effective enough job of that because there are people who need to hear and want to hear. And we need to tell them whether they want to hear it or not, Lord. That's what, your, that's what your disciples did. That's what the apostles did. Give us the courage and strength because we know we have the power by the Holy Spirit to go out and be witnesses, beginning with those closest to us and then helping send witnesses and people throughout the world to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and the only way for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. To learn more about how you can become a Christian or grow in your walk with the Lord and receive freely of all the biblically-based content we have created or donate to help keep this ministry going strong, go to onlyjesus.life. That's onlyjesus.life.